Over the last three weeks, we've been slowly developing an answer to the question, what in the world is going on? Excuse me. And we've been looking at the master story of the Bible, and we've asked and answered three questions so far. What on earth am I here for? If God is perfect, why is this world in such a mess? And then last week, Israel, who cares? And we learned that we need to care because the story of Israel is a huge part of the master story of the Bible. And we learned that it could be summarized in six key acts of God to help us remember this big story. Election, which is the definitive choice. Redemption, the definitive deliverance. Revelation, the definitive lifestyle. Exile, the definitive judgment. Covenant, the definitive promise. And fulfillment, the definitive Israelite is specifically in the person of Jesus. And if you weren't here last week, it's probably a good idea to listen to the message either on the internet or get a copy so you just understand what this is all about. Today we want to focus our entire message on on this one individual Israelite named Jesus through whom this um, story of Israel comes to its fulfillment. And just as we began this series by looking at the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, We want to begin today's story by looking at the very first verse in the very first book of the New Testament, one of the Gospels written by Matthew. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the story of Jesus is told by four of his disciples, four different angles on the same person, some overlap, some unique perspectives. Matthew probably told his story primarily with a group of uh, people from an Israelite or Jewish background to understand precisely this message of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's working throughout the history of the people of Israel. And the very first verse of the New Testament begins with these words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right in the beginning, as he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he immediately connects it with the story of Abraham, where we began last week, the story of Israel, to show that this isn't some brand new thing that's happening, but it is of one piece with what started with Abraham. The rest of chapter 1 finishes with the story of the birth of Jesus, and then chapter 2 begins with uh, an account of uh, key individuals, wise people, um, who were living in the east, some distance away from Israel, non-Israelites. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, a wise people from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And as you read chapter 2 further, you will find that they did discover where he was. And they show up at the place where Jesus and Mary are. And they in fact worship him in these words. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. What's the significance of this? The opening verse connects the story of Jesus with Abraham. And the second chapter connects it with the second part of the story of Abraham. That through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because we now see key individuals from other nations than Israel worshipping the infant Jesus. So right at the very beginning movements of the first book of the Bible. We see it connected squarely with the covenant that God made with Abraham that Jesus is that key descendant of Abraham and the nations of the earth will bow down and worship him. It's also interesting, by the way, you know, Christmas is not too far away and all the shopping stuff will start soon. It's interesting that the very first gifts recorded in the Bible, Christmas gifts are the gifts that people gave to Jesus, not to one another. 
Now, if you read on, you will find something else that's very fascinating in the life of Jesus. In the next few verses, we read, When they had gone, these wise men had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And then a few verses later, which was probably quite a bit of time later, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now, what's this doing here? Think back again to what we learned last week. At the very beginning stages of the people of God, Israel, when the descendants of Jacob were just about 70 people, what happened? There was a famine in the land that threatened them, their existence, and so they went to Egypt. And they were there. And then after God had a confrontation with Pharaoh, God showed up in Egypt. Israel, now much larger people, went back to the land. Isn't it interesting that the opening movements in the story of Jesus, exactly the same kind of thing happens. His life is threatened, only this time not by famine but by a king. Where does he go? He goes to Egypt. And then after a certain time, when another king has been dealt with, he comes back to the promised land. Jesus is reliving the moving movement of the people of Israel into Egypt and the coming back out. He is reliving in himself the history of his people. So you take the two opening chapters of Matthew's gospel... And you see the point that is being made very clearly for us. The story of Jesus that is about to unfold in the next four books of the Bible, especially in Matthew's Gospel, is of one piece with the story of Israel that began with Abraham, that through him, through Jesus, the nations of the earth will be blessed. A snapshot of that being the worship of Jesus by these wise men. And that Jesus in his life, relives and recapitulates the most important event in Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt. Now, why is this important? I remember in my early years after I became a Christian, when I went back home and was sharing some of this with my, my mother and my aunt and uncle and others, and one of the common responses was, well, Christianity is such a new religion. Hinduism is much older. It's crucial for us to understand this. Christianity was not some religion that started 2,000 years ago because some charismatic Jewish rabbi was so brilliant that he was able to draw all kinds of people to himself. This wasn't some superstar religion. This was the fulfillment of millennia of human history under the sovereign control of God. This is the story to which all of history has been pointing to. The life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his work is what the master's story is all about. There is nothing older than this in one sense. That's why this is so important for us to grab. That's why I think Matthew opens the way he does. So now let's make that more specific. He was also the culmination of revelation, the divine definitive lifestyle. And it happened in two stages. John, another one of the gospel writers, in his first chapter, uh, says those words that were so beautifully portrayed for us in that video. The word, which is a way in the Greek language... To to refer to the pre-existent Christ. Christ existed before. Christmas wasn't the beginning of Jesus' existence. It was when he took upon himself human form. He became flesh. He became a human being. And he dwelt within us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And John goes on to tell us. That the reason Jesus took upon himself human form. And lived among us. Was to show us the Father. 
Later on in a conversation with one of his disciples, Philip, we, have, we read this interchange. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? One key aspect of the definitive revelation that came through Jesus was that he showed us God as Father. Intimacy with God is not the characteristic of most of the religions of this world. In fact, one of the most influential religions in this world specifically teaches that you cannot know God personally, that He is distant, He is unaffected by human beings, and whatever He dishes out, we just simply need to submit. In fact, the very meaning of their religion means to submit. In other religions, the primary mode is one of bargaining with God. God, if you do this for me, then I will do this. I will make this offering. I will give that money. I will do whatever. And in most religions of the world, and certainly the tribal ones, fear is a dominant component. We need to do something to appease this angry God, to get him off our back. Even last night I was talking to somebody who had, had done something quite innocent. And he said, am I in danger of being punished? In sharp contrast to this, Jesus comes to show us a very different picture of God. He comes to show God as Father. But he does it in a very interesting way. He said... The way you go, I'm going to show you the Father is you look at me. And what I'm like, that's what the Father is like. You know how in our everyday language you use the phrase, oh, he's a chip off the old block. We look at the Son and we say, oh, he's just like his Father. This works the opposite way. We can't see the Father. We just look at the Son and we say, oh, that's what the Father must be like. What exactly did Jesus show himself like? Well, we are told in that first verse, he made his dwelling amongst us. And Eugene Peterson, one of the most gifted modern day writers, says in his very freewheeling translation, which often gets to the point really well, he said, he said, God became a human being and moved into our neighborhood. And what kind of a life did he live in our neighborhood? Well, one of the most obvious things about Jesus, as he lived in the neighborhood of, that he moved into, was that he welcomed everybody. Anybody invited Jesus to dinner, he went. It didn't matter whether they were important or unimportant in society. It didn't matter whether they were rich or poor. It didn't matter whether they were um, religious or they were considered immoral people by the powers that be. Anybody who wanted Jesus to come close to them, he was close to them. And anybody who wanted to come close to Jesus, there were no barriers at all. And what Jesus is saying is, that's what the Father is like. Is that good news? It should be. (laughs) Because some of you are sitting here saying, I'm not particularly influential as the world counts influence. Others may be saying, I don't have much of these world's resources. I don't have much influence because of that either. Some of you may even be saying, I don't even feel all that holy or good or religious today. In fact, I'm far more aware of all the things in my life that are shortcomings. You know, not one of those things is an obstacle to coming close to Jesus. You want to be close to him, you, uh, you can come to him. That's what Jesus said. The Father is just like I am. In fact, it says here, He was full of grace and truth. Grace is one of the most important words about God that Jesus came to show us. Now, grace is best understood in contrast to two other words, justice and mercy. And you've heard this before from me, but it bears remembrance. Justice is simply giving people what they deserve. Somebody breaks the law, they get the full force of the law. That's justice. You can't argue with that. Mercy simply withholds What that person deserves maybe gives them a lesser sentence or no sentence at all. Grace goes one step beyond mercy and gives them what they do not deserve. 
And one of the most well-known stories of Jesus was told to illustrate this point of grace. The father's grace. He tells the story of a father who had two sons. And, and the younger son is painted in a words that would be most reprehensible to the Jewish people of that day. First of all, he asks his father for his inheritance. Which is another way of saying, I wish you were dead. So give me my inheritance. And secondly, he squanders all that inheritance in loose living. Second strike against him. And thirdly, when he does try to get a job because he's hungry, he works amongst the pigs, the most uncleanest of all vocations you could have. You couldn't have a more distasteful picture of a son painted. Anyway, this son comes to his senses in the story and says, I'm just going to go back to my father and tell him I'm a servant. I'm no better than a servant. Can I at least be a servant in your house? Well, enter the father. Justice would have meant the father saying to him, get out of my house. You wanted me dead, you've got your inheritance, out you go. That would be justice. Mercy would say, okay, I won't deal with you that way. You want to be a servant, you can be a servant. That would be mercy. But that wasn't the father. Jesus painted a picture of a father who was waiting, looking for this son. And he ran towards him with open arms and welcomed him. And he threw a huge party for him. That's grace. That's the picture that he painted for us. This is what the father is like. <clears throat> and by the way, he said, because he's this kind of a father, when you talk to him, just call him daddy. Call him father. That's where we get the our father prayer from. This was not the way people addressed God. In fact, we are so used to calling God as father, we don't pause to think of the colossal implications of this word to the first hearers of the statement. They didn't talk to God as father. In fact, in the Jewish heritage that they had, rightly so, they had a reverence for God that maybe we need a little bit more of. It was told when the scribes would copy down the, that special name of God that we say Jehovah or Yahweh. Of course, they didn't have the vowel points and they're just the consonants. So you couldn't pronounce the name. When a scribe was writing down Yahweh, if a king spoke to him, he wouldn't look up. That was their idea of God. And Jesus is saying, you call him Father. And so that's the first dimension of this beautiful revelation in Christ. He showed us the Father by showing us himself. And he showed us the picture of a father who was welcoming anybody who would come to him. Now, he also showed us the lifestyle that is to flow from this, that if we are the children of such a God, then this is supposed to characterize our relationship with people as well, that we are to be full of grace towards them. Now, think with me for a moment on the implication of this for his first century listeners. He was saying this to Israel, who were under bondage to Rome. And Rome was a harsh and a cruel taskmaster. And so... The primary attitude of the people of Israel to Rome was hatred, uh, bristling at the injustice that this Gentile people would be on the land that was theirs by promise. And some of the religious leaders, probably the Pharisees most likely, even through their teaching, fomented active rebellion. And there were politically motivated groups that even uh, resorted to violence against Rome. In this milieu, Jesus is coming to them and saying... Don't fight, forgive. 
Don't hate but love your oppressors. And this becomes even more staggering when we take a few moments to look at what the history of the Jewish people was like in the 500 years preceding the coming of Jesus. Many of their leaders, especially a couple of brothers known as the Maccabean brothers, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, led revolts against rulers in those days to stand up for the purity of the worship in the temple. Some of them were brutally tortured for this. And, and they would not give up their faith even in the face of torture. But even as they were dying with hands being cut off and whatnot, they would give glory to God, but they would curse their persecutors and pronounce judgment upon them. Can you imagine to these people Jesus' words saying, that's not what you should be doing. You should actually be praying for, forgiving and blessing these people. It would be unthinkable for them to do that in the history of their own martyrs that they venerated so much. No wonder his famous sermon on the mount begins with those words. Be blessed are the poor in spirit, humble people. Blessed are they who mourn, not mourn over the fact that they are under captivity, but they are sinners. Blessed are the meek who will inherit the land by trusting in God and letting God be their deliverer, not fighting for the land. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the ones who fight. And blessed are they who receive persecution with joy. So he was calling them to this kind of a lifestyle. He was also calling them to change their attitude towards Gentiles as a whole. Because Israel, rather than fulfill their wonderful destiny to be a blessing to the nations, basically turned that into a sense of privilege and looked down upon the other nations. By the way, that's the other reason why he told that well-known story. So much, so much, We all know the story of the prodigal son in terms of the beautiful picture of the father that we forget the context as to why he told that story. And in Luke's gospel, which is another disciple of Jesus who wrote, uh, another follower of Jesus who wrote his story, in chapter 15 we are given the context for the story of the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, in other words the moral riffraff of society that the religious elite didn't want to have anything to do with, but that Jesus loved to hang around with, were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering and grumbling. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So here's the setting. Why did he tell the parable of the, of the, of the story of the prodigal son? Yes, to show what the father was like, what grace was like. But also, also to address these people who were murmuring and grumbling about the fact that Jesus was eating with the lower echelons of society. <clears throat> That's why the story doesn't stop with a father welcoming the younger son. The story moves to its climax in the focus on the other brother, the older brother, who gets angry and he refuses to come and join the party. And so the father goes out to the son and says, come, you should rejoice. And the interesting thing is, the story doesn't tell you what the elder brother did. Why? Because that elder brother represented the Pharisee and Israel and God, Jesus was calling Israel to be Israel in a whole new way and we don't know whether they were going to accept it or not. Well, the fact of the matter is Israel didn't. The elder brother didn't join the party. Israel largely persisted in her way of hatred and rebellion and the sentence that Jesus pronounced upon them happened. The temple was destroyed and they themselves were completely destroyed. 2,000 years later, we're in exactly the same situation. My brothers and sisters and friends, we should acknowledge that openly. We are not poor in spirit. We do not mourn over our sins. We are not meek when it comes to conflict. We do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. We are not merciful people. We certainly are not primarily peacemakers. 
of peace. We might want peace, but we don't make peace properly. And we know nothing of persecution. We mumble and grumble, and I do, at the least sign of discomfort. So we have, and this is the problem of sin. And so if this lifestyle that Jesus wants us to live, this definitive lifestyle that He lived, which is the lifestyle of the Father, and so if we are children of the Father, this is how we need to live. Something has to be done about this issue of sin. And that takes us to the next dimension of the story of Israel that found fulfillment in Jesus. Redemption, the definitive deliverance. Now, last week we learned that for them it was the exodus from Egypt. That mighty deliverance and through the Red Sea was what Israel celebrated over and over in her worship. But what Jesus focuses on and the New Testament focuses on is the fact that that wasn't our real bondage. Their real bondage at that time wasn't Rome. Our real bondage, right now we're not in any bondage here, more or less, but that's not our problem. The real problem is the problem of human sin. And it is shown by something that is absolutely universal in human experience. We are not able to live up to our own standards, let alone somebody else's. And when we violate those standards, we want to make excuses. So we come home from work and you can change the situation to apply it to your situation. Usually it happens in interpersonal issues. We're hungry and dinner is not ready on the table and we snap in anger at our wife you know, or whoever else is responsible to get dinner ready for us. Now, of course, when we are confronted with that, what do we say? Oh, I did that because I was tired. Or because my boss called me in just before I came and reamed me out. Or because this is the 18th straight day in which dinner is late. When we say things like that, we are immediately confessing three things. First of all, we are confessing that there is a standard that we ourselves acknowledge we need to live by. Otherwise, we wouldn't be making excuses. Secondly, we acknowledge that we've blown it. And thirdly, we want exoneration. We're confessing all those three things in that behavior. But we want exoneration not by accepting responsibility, but by passing the buck, which goes all the way back to what we learned two weeks ago. Now, what would happen? Who, who do you think reacts this way instead? Wind the clock back, you come in, you find exactly the same situation, you find anger welling up within you, but instead of saying something, this is what you think. Mm, this is the kind of man I really am. I'm a sinful man at the core of my being. This anger is unjustified and sinful. I'm a man who desperately needs salvation and grace. But what, and what you say on the outside is, she must have had a really hard day and you say, honey, how can I help? She'd probably drop dead if we said that. <laughs> out of sheer shock. But the interesting thing is, that's how Jesus wants us to behave and we can't do it. That's our dilemma. And Paul, the apostle, the early Christian leader, we've been every now and then listening to what he had to say to a small little church in Rome, puts it very beautifully when he says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with my heart, more or less saying I know what I should do, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. This is our real captivity. And so this raises the question, what is to be done about this sin? Because you see, Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
And because the father is just like Jesus, the father is full of grace and truth. We've already dealt with the grace side of it. The truth side of it, which relates to his holiness, says sin has to be dealt with and punished. So the holiness of God demands that he be just with us. But we've just said grace goes way beyond justice. So here's the dilemma. What allows God to be holy and still circumvent the demands of justice so he can be gracious? You and I do it all the time and we are inconsistent. God cannot be flippantly inconsistent with himself. He never is. So that's the other way of asking the question. And that's what Jesus came to deal with as well. John, uh, the other gospel writer, in his first chapter, at one point looking at Jesus, points to somebody else and says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he uses the word Lamb, we now know from last week's sermon that it goes all the way back to what happened in Egypt. When Pharaoh would not let his slaves go, the tenth and final de- definitive plague was the sentence of the death of the firstborn. And, his, and the Hebrew slaves would have had exactly the same problem if they did not take the blood of a perfect lamb and put it upon their doorpost, and then the angel of death would pass over them. The Lamb of God, as Jesus Basically points them all. You see, it's, it's, the full, it's the end point of the same story. And then in, in the blood of all the animals that were shed after that, we learned that the sacrificial system drove home three things to the people. That sin meant death. God graciously accepts the death of a substitute. And that substitute had to be perfect. And so when John says Jesus is the Lamb of God, he says he's the one who fulfilled all of those three things. You and I deserve death for our sins. And justice was fulfilled, but was all fulfilled by what happened to Jesus. And in his death, he so completely satisfied the demands of the wrath of God and the holiness of God, that God can be the Father with open arms to you and me, and still not have violated his justice. All of that in one sentence, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But the whole world, what, what about this sacrifice so satisfied the wrath of God that it took away the sin of the whole world? I mean, the Israelites, each person had to keep on bringing a lamb or whatever animal they could afford, a turtle dove or pigeon or where the poor people could. For every sin that was committed, they had to make another offering. But this one offering took away all the sin of the world, so there was no more offering needed. What, what, what allowed that to happen? What was so colossal about Jesus' death on the cross that it had such global significance across time and space? In a way that scripture does not explain as to its mechanics, but it affirms very clearly, God put our sin on Jesus and it was anticipated. And this takes us to the other one, Jesus, the fulfillment of the exile of Israel. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, anticipated this and he says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We, are, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the words, he was stricken by God, he was smitten by God. It wasn't in the final analysis Jews or Romans who killed Jesus, they were the instrumental cause. God was the final ultimate cause, or the initiating cause 
of the, of the um, punishment of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writing to another church, early first century church in, in, in the city of Corinth, said the same thing. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice it doesn't say he just carried our sin. When we carry a burden, it doesn't become part of us. But when you have a cancer growing within you, it's part of you. They're two completely different things. Our sin was placed on Jesus, not just as a burden. He actually became sin for us. And when he did, all of the full fury and the wrath of God was turned on Jesus. And sin only can bring about one judgment Complete separation from God. That's what the exile pictured. The exile was a picture of which this was the fulfillment. And I want to paint for you a picture of what the anguish of Jesus was really like. Because he cried out. Because of this he cried out supremely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't the physical pain. I've told you that many times before. There was nothing unique about the physical pain of Jesus. All kinds of people were regularly crucified. In fact, you could even argue that he suffered less physically. Because he died in six hours. Most people who were crucified, it took one and a half days or two days to die. Remember, Pilate was so amazed that he died in six hours. What then was the uniqueness of Jesus' suffering? Well, it has to do with the fracture. It has to do with alienation from God. Let me illustrate it this way. If you as a mother, I use mothers because their bondings are so much far stronger than even fathers. If you as a mother had two children and you love them both, both children graduate from college, one of them moves down the street and the other one moves to China. Which one is going to, which separation is going to cause you more pain? Obviously the one that moved to China. The greater the distance of separation, the more the pain. That's principle number one. Now go back, we have to take the story back. Now imagine two children. One is your own and one is a, a very close friend. Roommate all through school and college. And so you've grown to love the other girl as your daughter as well. Now both of them moved to China. Which one is going to, is going to cause you more pain? Obviously your daughter. Not because you didn't like the other one, but this one, the initial, the distance was the same, but the initial bonding was stronger. And so there are two things that contribute to the pain of separation. The intensity of the original bonding and the distance of the separation. In Jesus' case, both of them were infinite, if you will. What was fractured was a relationship between two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. And the distance was infinite. Now mathematically, you cannot add infinity to infinity, I know that. But what this drive home to us is the fact of the intensity of the pain of Jesus. When he bore within him all of the alienation of all humankind because of all the sin that there ever was. It was nothing less than the death of God that was sufficient to take away the sins of the world. By the way, this is what the essence of hell is all about. Just as the dominant essence of heaven is the intimate presence of the Father and the Son in all His glory and beauty and a community of love. So the essence of hell is the total absence of anything having to do with God and the gracious holy influences of God and a community that is completely bereft of anything of God. So Jesus experienced in Himself that which was hinted at in the exile of Israel. One last question and with that we are finished. Alright, this dealt with the issue of the penalty of sin. It dealt with the issue of the justice of God being satisfied so the grace of God can flow to you and me. But what about the one other thing, that, that new covenant that was promised? Remember the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah? Where Jeremiah said, I will take the law and I will write it upon your heart. 
And all of you will have intimate relationship with me. That still has to, hasn't become true. How has Jesus become the fulfiller of that? What about this principle of Romans chapter 7? The good that I want to do, I don't do. What about the powerlessness to live lives of grace? Jesus also becomes a fulfiller of the new covenant. And this happens not in his death, but after his resurrection and ascension. The Bible tells us that Jesus still lives to be our high priest. That song that Allison sang for us, Jesus my high priest. We don't have, we don't need to depend upon an elaborate system of human priesthood. Israel had that. Some religions do today, but we don't need any human intermediaries. We have direct and immediate access to God through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. And in an early Christian community that were probably made up of Christians from a Jewish background, somebody wrote a letter called the letter to the Hebrews, and this is what they said. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. In this continual journey of learning to live like the Father, learning to live lives of grace and truth, we will mess it up once in a while. But we have a priest, an advocate who cries out to the Father, so we find mercy. Not only that, we also find grace to be gracious. And we find that grace just in the nick of time. That's what the essence of the translation. Just when we need it. Just at that moment when you walk into the door and the dinner isn't ready and you feel like exploding, it is possible to turn to a high priest who prays for us and we find grace to respond differently. And so he fulfills the terms of the new covenant by his present ministry. As his death in the historical past, but eternally present before the Father, took care of our penalty for our sin. His present ministry as high priest continues that. And, and also in terms of our perfection. He said, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made whole. We have been set apart as special and he's perfecting us little by little by little as our high priest. So, you want to ask the question again? What, on, what has Jesus ever done for me? I hope you know the answer. First of all, he died so a holy father could be father and could welcome us, anybody with open arms. And then he now lives to pray for us as an advocate so we have mercy when we sin, grace just in the nick of time, and he prays so that we will become progressively more and more holy people. That's what Jesus has done for you and for me. All that is left is for you and me to appropriate. One of the ways, and I've presented this to you every week, is a ministry that we have in our church called Alpha, where in a non-threatening setting, every Tuesday night for the next nine weeks, you can have a nice hot meal, you can meet with individuals, you can listen to a stimulating video that continues to elaborate more this message of Jesus that you heard about in a brief 35-minute message, where you can explore it, ask the questions you want to, uh, without fear of being put down, hopefully by people who will respond with grace to your questions and encourage you to continue on that journey. Well, I was thinking this morning, you know, of um, a blessing. I know what I need. That's what I want to bless you with. That in the nick of time, you may know the grace of Christ to be gracious. Go in Jesus' name.